Welcome back to Eldritch Girl, where we are serialising The Crows, which is all rights reserved to CM Rosens. The theme tune is by Gemma Cartmel. The illustrations in the books are by Thomas Brown. If you're enjoying the podcast um, and you don't want to buy the books, that's fine. Um, if you'd like to support me on Ko-fi, though, and just drop a tip in the jar, you can do that instead. And that's uh, www.ko-fi.com forward slash CM Rosens. It would be much appreciated. Welcome to the morning of Carrie's final day, the 13th of May. Uh, this is chapter 19, content winnings for gore um, and the point of view of a relapsed alcoholic character and quite a lot of grief in this chapter as well. Chapter 19, Let the Past Burn, in which things unravel and Ricky says goodbye. 13th of May. Colonel Mark Curtis lived on the outskirts of Pagamon Sea near the new estate. From the cottage, the estate was clearly visible a sharp incongruity of concrete high rises surrounded by fields and a high brick wall bristling with cameras and high powered floodlights. The cottage was an outpost between the wall and the town, a short walk from Pagan Parkway Station. Every night, the Colonel went for his patrol around the perimeter of that wall, checking the lights were on. He was the sole garrison, the thin red line, the one thing that stood between what was inside the shadows behind those walls and the empty shadows of the town. Fairwood could sense the purpose of the building, its functionality, its structure, its past. It read the layers of energies baked into the stone and architectural quirks like a three-dimensional map. The colonel was out. The cottage was empty and alone. Cathy Ross came first, a small flutter of silent white through the large mirror. From her apron pocket, a small chip of tile tumbled out and bounced along the carpet. Fairwood expanded from the small tile chip, angling itself into a corner by the skirting and let itself meld with the cottage, feeling for hiding places and all the secrets owners like to keep. Carrie's curiosity had soaked into it like water into old wood. Questions riddled its thoughts like woodworm in a beam. From the mirror, a vengeful spectre with whirlpool eyes watched, the frame oozing flies. Hello, Fairwood greeted her. You'll be back soon. Bit tougher than old Harry, I'd say. The malevolence of Cathy Ross, infused with the spite of the crows, glared at the avatar through the glass. They'll catch you if you keep using mirrors like that, Fairwood warned her, melting a hand through a painting and into the safe beyond. There was a clunk and a click of the lock mechanism. And after the colonel, there's at least one more to go. She'll be the toughest, and I can't help you there. Revenge, whispered Cathy Ross. Fairwood dipped into the safe and rifled through the contents, eyes frosting over with data. The new broadband connection was worth the line rental. Anything outside of Fairwood's own experience could be downloaded. The photograph was at the back, in a manila envelope. It was a match to the one Janet Varney had tried to burn. The figures were clearer and marred by fire damage. Well, this isn't good, Fairwood muttered, sliding it out. Better keep hold of this. You won't be needing it after today, anyway. The flies buzzed in a low drone, vibrating bodies swarming thick against the mirror glass. Ricky's head pounded with pressure, a jackhammer behind his eyes. 
It was the last day, her last day. Rising season was upon them. He could feel the life in the soil below his feet, pushing up with greedy, thirsty fingers, the contamination taking root in long-dead flesh and marrow bone. His father would be recovering faster now without daily dosing. He'd missed a few now, and Ricky couldn't face the struggle that would ensue to pour a fresh dose down his throat. He couldn't go back home. Bramble Cottage was no longer the broken-down border of his life, but Fairwood needed proof he meant it, proof he would respect her rules. He knew he was swapping one cage for another, but at least it was one he'd chosen. He strolled back to the mouth of the smuggler's tunnel, spat on the skin of his latest palms, too smooth, too new for decent work, and dragged the bulging sack of bits and bones further away from the gaping hole. It was not a part of him. No reason to feel it was being cut off, no reason for the hollow in his chest. It was spring cleaning, that was all, not an amputation. Antlers twitched as the skull bumped along the ground. The green man tile bumped against his leg. A leaden razor pulsed in his chest. Gerald dragged a groove through the chase and into the fields beyond it, trussed up limbs tight against the donkey hide. The pyre was ready. Gerald was silent, inanimate as ever, not one to fight against the web of destiny. Even when Ricky bent his knees and hurled him up into place, there was no movement, no protest. It can't be helped, Ricky said, gruff and panting. He dug out the green man and propped it up so Fairwood could see. Don't look at me like that. It's the only way she'll trust me. Ricky glanced back at the green man. You think you got the missus all to yourself, don't you? He asked it, thinking of Carrie. Way I see it, that still ain't true. Not really. Look, this is my sacrifice. All for you. We go way back, you and me, right? Well, what's she burning then, if she loves you more than I do? What? Ricky took a step back. I'm just telling the truth, he said sweetly. I'm giving up something. But she hasn't, has she? Not all of it. What do you mean? That family of hers. That necklace she wears, binding her to them. She hasn't taken it off, has she? Still a part of her she hasn't given up. No. No. You're trying to get between us. I'm not. I'm just saying I'm... I'm as committed as she is. I'm an asset. You need me to do the things she can't. He nodded, giving the flames their cue, and the pyre ignited in a rush of smoke and sparks. The heat flared against his skin. See? His voice caught. Gerald never moved when the flames licked his hide. Never twitched, except when the wood shifted and the skull sank, twisting sideways to stare mournfully at his creator and betrayer, with dead, dun-coloured eyes. For a brief moment, they reflected someone else behind Ricky, creeping up with long-limbed stealth. Spider-jointed arms reached for him in a dark rage, claws extended. The flame-licked skull smiled, and Ricky turned too late. Guy had a drink to face the day, just one. It was nice of Paula to tell him herself yesterday. Wouldn't tell him all of it, but he got the gist. He poured himself a hair of the dog. Beverly would say it was all right, even if his dad would disapprove. Oh, no, 
his dad couldn't disapprove any more. A phone call saved him from pouring another. Mark Curtis, on his way home from an early morning walk, inviting him over for lunch, telling him he shouldn't be on his own. I'll be round in ten, Guy promised, putting up a front. Easy to do when you couldn't look the other person in the eye. Mark had been the first person he had told once Paula had left. How are you holding up? Oh, you know, the sound of keys being pulled out of a pocket, jingling into the lock. It's you I'm worried about, son. It's a hell of a thing to happen. Hell of a thing. You don't sound too clever. Are you all right? I'm fine, Guy lied. It hadn't sunk in, even though he had been waiting for the news for months. He thought it would be peaceful, at night in bed or sat up in his chair. He hadn't expected a house call from the detective inspector. If I ask you a straight question, will you tell me the truth? An unusually tactful approach from the old duffer, I thought, even though he knew what the question was going to be. Sure. I know you had a little drop before the meeting this week. I just wanted to ask, should I be worried? He meant, was it like before? Should there be an intervention? Did he need to go back to meetings, to a clinic? Would his father be upset? No, of course not. His father was dead. Guy winced, rubbing the back of his neck. Has Beverly said something to you? I want to hear it from you. Guy heard the door close. Are you home? Just got in. Keys dropped into the bowl. Come over when you're ready. We could have lunch. A pause, a gentle nudge. I'm waiting on an answer, Guy. Guy sucked his teeth, holding back the tears. He hadn't cried for a long time, not since his mother died. He'd had to be strong for his dad, sitting up in his chair until four in the morning, reading the same page of the same book over and over and not seeing any of the words. He hadn't cried at the church when the Methodist minister asked him to come up and say a few words. He'd made sure to smile and thank people for coming. It wasn't her anyway, not her lying there. It was just a box with her name on it. Then they'd got to the crematorium. Some well-meaning neighbour put their arm around his shoulders and said how beautiful the wreaths looked, and everything had fallen apart. It felt like that now, his world crumbling leaving nothing but empty space, no path, no signposts, no way back. The racing tips weren't enough. Bloody Ricky Porter. Five to two. What shit odds were they? He was losing his dad's shop, the last bit of his dad, and his dad had died alone in fear. Taken from him, but not by the death they'd expected, not the one they'd prepared themselves for. It wasn't fair. I, um, I'm sorry, Uncle Mark. He pressed the phone into his chest as he sniffed back the loss and cleared his throat. He raised the phone again. I'll be over in ten minutes. There was a sound of breaking glass on the other end. What the devil? There was an unearthly shriek, jarring in the speaker, full of hate and fury. Guy's phone battery drained from 57% to nothing and went dead. Mark? Uncle Mark? He held the power button down, but it wouldn't come back on. Shit! He was out into the drive and getting in his car, although he knew he wasn't all right to drive. He broke at least three traffic laws racing through town, but he didn't care. The colonel's car was in the drive. Red-eyed, he trampled the flower bed and peered in through the living room window. A fat black fly wrung its legs in consternation on the other side of the pane. Mark! The spare key was under a rock. 
Guy had used it several times, but in that moment he couldn't remember which one. He heaved up the stones around the front door, spraying his jeans with soil, breaths ragged and shallow. The key revealed itself, chinking against stone, and Guy snatched it up, fumbling it. He got it into the keyhole on the fourth try. Mark Curtis was lying on his back in the living room, veins standing out in his throat and head, eyes bugging out at something no longer there. Guy heaved. Mark Curtis had been torn apart from the inside, as if something had seeped into his blood and birthed itself through his chest. He'd always been a powerful man, solid as a tree. Guy remembered being hoisted in a fireman's lift when he was fourteen, his dad looking on, not one for games. Those strong ribs were shattered and open, a gaping wound where his heart should have been. Guy looked up, sweat beading on his forehead, blood rushing away from his brain. The ceiling swam, a gory mess, with indescribable things clotting where they'd splattered. A faint child's giggle made him jump, hairs prickling up over the back of his neck. Could a little girl do this? I'm going to... He started threatening her, but the second heave cut him off with a watery gurgle. He slapped a hand over his mouth and backed out of the living room, out of the door. His phone was already in his hands, but he threw up first, over and over, until he was dry-heaving his grief into the ruined flowers. Wiping his mouth with the back of his hand, eyes streaming, he leaned against the wall for support. His phone should still be dead, but it wasn't. He stared at it, the display reading the wrong date and time, as it struggled back to life. It wasn't the police, he called. Hello, dear. Guy breathed out. Beverly... Thank God, I I need to talk to you. Guy, what's the matter? The voice that could reach him any time of day or night, regardless of signal, blew the dread away. Beverly Wend could solve any problem, fix any broken thing, right any wrong. Beverly Wend could make everything go away. Is this about your father? Yes, no, it's about... Uncle Mark, the Colonel, it's... God, he's dead. Guy said, breaking. He slumped against the wall in the dirt, staring at the patch of vomit beside him without really seeing it. I'm at Uncle Mark's house and and he's... He broke off, gasping. He's gone. It's not his time to go, Beverly said, reasonable. Something ripped his heart clean out of his chest, Guy rasped. Can he come, come back from that? There was a dead silence. Beverly, can he? She didn't reply. Guy lowered the phone from his ear, staring at the well-kept lawn that Colonel Curtis would no longer mow, the roses and lavender bushes he would no longer tend to. It wasn't his time to go. The abyss wasn't due to open yet, and even when it did, he would be back. Guy had imagined that scene a thousand times in his head, running it over like a chapter in a novel. He, Guy, would be older and white-haired. He would be gardening, maybe, or out for a slow stroll. He'd look up his eyesight weaker, hearing no longer as sharp, but he'd see Colonel Curtis striding towards him with his usual confidence, bristling moustache the same as ever, and they'd shake hands. And Guy wouldn't die alone, no matter what happened, no matter who or what life swept away from him. And the Colonel would play chess with him the way they used to when Guy was a boy, and this time Guy might even win. Colonel Curtis had been loyal to the bishops all the years he'd been in Pagamon Sea, generation after generation, getting to know them all as the decades came and went. A friendship the Colonel claimed went back before the Battle of Hastings, although the family line had gone through several family names since then. It didn't matter what they were called. The Colonel had always sought them out, the heirs to his friendship. 
bloodhound faithful, Harriet liked to say. Loyal enough that, after the doctor's diagnosis, the colonel was prepared to sacrifice even his honour for a dark ritual, a dirty secret, and give Harry a chance to live, to grow old, to have a child who would not, in their turn, leave the colonel all alone. Bez, please, I need your help, Guy whispered. Please, Bez, I don't know, I don't know what to do. I did everything the way you told me to. I didn't... Please, Beverly, please help him. When Beverly Wen spoke again, her voice was hard and cold. I warned them. I warned them all at the start what they'd be bringing on their heads, but our Eileen always knew best, didn't she? Always knew better than me. Guy shivered, swallowing his sobs. That ghost. It got Dad. And Mark. It's coming for you next. I know it will. Don't worry about me. I've got some tricks too. But I need you to pull yourself together, do you hear me? Pull yourself together and do as I say. Can you do that? Guy nodded, forgetting it was a phone call. He caught himself and verbalised it. Yes. Burn it down. The dread pulled in Guy's sore stomach, whispering that this, obscurely, was his fault. He could hear Beverly in his hand. Guy? Guy, answer me. He raised the phone back to his ear. Burn what down? Fairwood House, of course. Burn the crows, Guy repeated. Set her on fire, Beverly said, in tones that brooked no argument. I'll deal with the spirit, but you deal with the house. But Beverly's rasp sighed through his head, loaded with years of disappointments and the endless rebellions of her spawn. Not you too. Guy struggled upright, lurching away from the wall. I... burn it down. I can't. It's cursed. For the last time, Guy, it's not cursed. That's a story. There's a protection glamour on it that only affects us, and that's real old blood magic. It can't hurt you. It's a lot of things, that house, but it can't curse you. Beverly sighed. It's under your skin, isn't it? Calls to you somehow, I know. I've heard it too. Now go over there. Take some petrol and set the damn thing on fire. That will take the strength out of this spirit and it'll be therapeutic for you. Leave the girl in there if you like. It will serve her right. Meddling like that, this is her fault. Guy shuddered, but the voice triggered something deep inside him, wrapped around his heart. This is her fault, he mumbled, alone in the garden. The echoes of childhood faded and died on the breeze. That's my boy. Beverly hung up. Guy stumbled back to his car and sat in it for a long time, gripping the steering wheel. When he rang the police to report the colonel's body, the bottle of bourbon was already half empty.
If you're enjoying the podcast um, and you don't want to buy the books, that's fine. Um, if you'd like to support me on Ko-fi though and just drop a tip in the jar, you can do that instead. And that's uh, www.ko-fi, so that's ko-fi.com forward slash cmrosens. It would be much appreciated.